someone has mixed an amazing Spider-Man in with the Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man series. This will not stand. Pardon me, but I wish to tender a serious cash offer for this stack of water-damaged little Lulu's. Uh, a, that is not water, it is Diet Mr. Pip. And B, I... Ooh. You're listening to Adam Aaron D. GED, Underground Cartoon uh, Therapy. Tell me, how do you feel about 45-year-old virgins who still live with their parents? Comb the sweet tarts out of your beard and you're on. Don't try to change me, baby. Welcome, guys, to episode 191 here on March 30th, 2022. We hit the second anniversary of Adam Air MD GED, Underground Cartoon Therapy. <laughs> Want to thank everybody for their ongoing support and the amazing stories that people have shared. Today, we got an amazing guest, Chuck Rosansky the owner and operator of Mile High Comics in Denver, the largest comic book shop in the world. Uh, read the description, you'll see. And it's amazing to talk to this guy. You're going to hear it. want to thank everybody. Stay tuned. Grab a seat and relax, because this is a great episode. <laughs> welcome to the show, and welcome to the second anniversary. Of AAMD GED. <laughs> Let's go. Uh oh. We'll be right back. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you the following breaking news story Mile High Comics. With our shelves as full as Batman's brain with knowledge, we have a comic book for everyone. Visit any of our three locations located all throughout Denver, Colorado. You can also visit our website at milehighcomics.com. We now return. I'm just going to do a tester right now. How you doing, Chuck? I'm doing great. <laughs> Out there in uh, comic book land, huh? Yeah, actually, I've been... I'm hanging uh, wallpaper right now as part of a big art project that I'm doing in my stairwell leading up to my offices. And uh, I am far from proficient at wallpaper hanging, but <laughs> I don't shy away from... You know, the only wallpaper uh, reference I can remember is out of Neil Adams' Green Lantern. It was the Green Lantern, Green Arrow uh, team up where the hippie activist guy wallpapers the inside of the airport with uh, human feces or whatever. Oh my god. You remember that shit? No, I actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was the hippie is on the back end of the air airplane, and he's like crucified to the back of the airplane. Yes, yeah, that was eighty nine. I think. Yeah. Was that eighty nine? The eighty nine issue eighty nine. Oh, issue eighty nine. Yep, that sounds right. Yeah, I was gonna say I thought that was like seventy something in the seventies. Oh, oh, it was. Yeah, 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 it was
was, yeah. Yeah, I think it was 71, I think. Yeah, yeah. that sounds so, right. Yeah. All right, give me one second, okay? All right. All right, welcome to the show, guys. I have Chuck Rosansky, the owner of the world's largest fucking comic book store. <laughs> and we're allowed to cuss on this show, Chuck. Good. Okay, I just wanted to let you know. No, no fucks barred. Oh, that's and we got an FPM thing too. You know, fucks per minute. My mom came up with that one. Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> I'm fine with that. My dad is a drill sergeant, so I uh, I got that down. <laughs> well, uh, I wanted to just thank you for uh, giving us the time here. My mom couldn't join us. She threw her back out. That's not nope, I have to go uh, down there like once a year, and she's a hoarder. I don't know how she gets this shit, man. She just comes up with, she's got clothes, all this stuff. I end up having to, you know, re-give, redistribute out to people that actually need it. And, you know, I know my mom wears the same three punk rock shirts all year long, so. <laughs> <laughs> she's an original punk rocker. <laughs> she belongs in Lucite. <laughs> but uh, I wanted to thank you again. And um, so right now, you are—you were talking about you're getting ready to go on a, a trip. You go all over the world regularly, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, mostly I, I travel the United States buying collections. Uh, you know, there's sort of a, a crazy streak inside of me that remembers when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. Uh, I actually lived in a car for four months, uh, traveling the country and buying and selling comics. And uh, I don't remember that period of homelessness with angst. I remember it with joy because it was during that four months that I raised the $800 that allowed me to open my first store. And so nowadays, I go back out on the road because it's sort of revisiting my beginnings. And it keeps me humble because it reminds me that I'm only where I'm at today because Providence has been incredibly kind to me. Yeah, that's a fair assessment, huh? Um. When you were living in your car and you were homeless, you were in Colorado, mainly? Oh, no. I, I um, had nowhere to, to park the car in Colorado, um, so I was traveling the byways. Um, if I knew that there was a convention coming up in Cleveland, for example, I would go to the Smoky Mountains and um, find a campsite and hang out there for three or four days. So I remember going from uh, a show in Orlando up to Hickory, North Carolina, hanging out in the Smoky Mountains for a couple of days, and then driving up to Cleveland and doing a show up there. When you uh, first realized, hey, this is what I want to do, and uh, how long was it between that moment to where you actually opened up your first retail store? You know well, what I'm saying? I tried to open a retail store when I was actually only 16 years old. 
Oh wow! I had a I had a friend who was a a coin dealer, and he was going to open up a coin shop, um, and I was going to have a comic shop in the back of it, and that's when I was still uh, uh, sophomore in high school, and he unfortunately was a dreadful alcoholic, mm-hmm. and so the when the morning came to uh, sign the lease, he simply didn't show up. He was um, in a drunken stupor. And so um, I opened up the first store when I was 19. I, I started selling to my friends when I was 12, 13 years old. I was, I was selling comics. Um, then I, I turned pro and started selling at a local antiques fair when I was 14. I started, uh, I, I started the Colorado Springs Comic Book Club and was its president for three years um, when I was 15. Uh, I did my first national show, uh, Oklahoma City, uh, when I was 17, opened my first store when I was 19, and I had four stores when I was 21. Now, in between the 19 and 21, I'm assuming, is where the infamous Mile High collection came in, right? Like uh, the first yeah. one? Yeah, I um, was already on my way to my fourth store at that point because it didn't really transpire until I was um, 21 and getting ready to turn to 22. Uh, and that's one of the things that, you know, when I when I read things online, which I, I try to not do very often because it irritates me, um, but when I read things online that repute to know about my history, there's a lot of them that talk about the Edgar Church collection as though that were the seminal point in my entire endeavor in the world of comics and in point of fact i had already been buying and selling comics for nearly eight years prior to that the call coming in about that collection it was those eight years of apprenticeship and learning that put me in a position to not only um, buy that collection but also to be aware that it had implications far above and beyond um just buying comic books. I mean, it, it was going to change the entire industry. Yeah, this was like something bigger than all that. It was a, it was a life changer, just a, all the way around. Well, it was a life changer for an entire generation of people that were fond of comics and graphic storytelling. And I've, I've written a lot about it. There's a uh, link on my homepage, on the Mile High Comics homepage, for a, a series of columns that I wrote called Tales from the Database. Okay. And uh, I wrote about 170 columns over a five-year span for Comics Buyer's Guide, the old Comics Buyer's Guide newspaper. Oh, yeah. And they were, they were incredibly popular. And in there, there's a 17-chapter detailing of that collection and the ramifications for the collection, not only on me individually, but as the, on the industry as a whole. Yeah. When you, okay, well, when you, uh, so really everything kind of started out of Colorado Springs, you would say, like, would you, that's kind of oh, where. Yeah. Well, even before then, um, in the American housing over in Germany, that's where I actually began. Oh, overseas? I'm sorry? Overseas, you were saying? Yeah. 
because you know there was a strange phenomenon that, that went on in Germany during that period of time. We had no television, so the Frankfurt area. There were other parts of of uh, Germany that had one American television station. I think it went out of uh, way down south, like Kaiserslautern or something like that. Um, but it didn't reach Frankfurt. So reading comic books and reading in general magazines was a really big deal because it was our number one form of entertainment. Yeah. So something continued in Frankfurt that had once upon a time been very common in the U.S., which is people accumulating large quantities of comics in boxes or grocery bags and then trading them with each other. And that actually became a social function. And so when I was 13 years old, I became the number one comic book trader in Germany on an, on an allowance of 25 cents a week. I amassed 3,000 comics over a period of two years. Wow. Um, that meant that I was doing a lot of swapping that was more than one for one. Um, and I was pretty adroit at doing that, even as a, as a very young person. What year was that when that, when that was going down? Uh, 1967 and 68, uh, going into 1969. Would you say, like, that kind of thing couldn't happen in the 21st century? Or do you think it could? No, I don't think it could ever happen. Because, first, you have to have a critical mass. Because yeah. in the Blankenstrasse housing area where I live, um, it was this very strange community where they had built... Um, these blocks of buildings in a row, they were so neatly lined up that if everybody had their um, living room curtains open and their dining room curtains open, you could see five buildings down from your living room. Wow. Okay. And these buildings all had 14 apartments because um, they had uh, 12 that were in double rows, so there were there were three stairwells with three apartments on either side, um, and uh, then you had two attic apartments that were for the families that had more than three kids. And uh, so we would walk up and down these stairwells, knock on the door, want to trade comics? Bang, bang, bang. You want to trade comics? Bang, bang, bang. You want to trade comics? And if you don't have a critical mass where at least half of your respondents have comics, then you're just wasting your time. And so that's where we are today. You couldn't go up and down a condo complex and knock on people's doors. That, that would be ridiculous. Now, today, however, you've got social media. And so in social with social media, you know, you could put a call out there and do trades and things like that. So it's a, it's a different way of doing it. But we used to hoof it. And uh, we'd have these cardboard milk clubs, and uh, they held uh, about 150 comics. So you would end up um, trudging up and down stairs. And most of my friends were a little bit lazy, and uh, <laughs> so they would go out trading a little bit. I was a fiend. I would go out. I would leave right after school, 3.30. You I had the energy. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would hit every every stairwell. And that's how I completed damn near uh, an entire Marvel Comics run. 
I think the only issue I was missing was Hulk number one. Um, but wow. aside from that, by the time I was 16 years old, I had a complete marvel. Oof, that's amazing, dude. <clears throat> well, by the time you hit the... So when you when you did come across the first collection, the infamous collection or whatever, that guy was like the guy that had passed away. Was he like a silent movie star? Is that what it was? Or I've heard all kinds of stories, but I I never really I wanted to hear it straight from you, really. No, he was an artist. What was he? Yeah. So Edgar Church worked for the Mount Bell system, and he was the first artist that ever got the call, this guy had already passed away, apparently. Is that no. part true? No. No. Everything I heard is, is bullshit, pretty much, it sounds like. <laughs> Isn't that the way with most of the world? I think so, you know, but most of the stories I did accumulate, I'll be fair, I heard out of uh, Time Warp and Boulder. They had a connection to you guys? Like, did that guy Wayne ever work with you or whatever? Time Warp's your original store. Was it originally going to be called World's Finest? No. <laughs> you know why? You know how I heard that was Wayne and Kent from Atomic both worked from you, and it was like the Bruce Wayne Clark Kent thing. Okay. Did you ever hear that? No. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'm glad I'm getting all my facts verified here. <laughs> I grew up under some mis miscommunications. <laughs> Um, and I changed it to just 
Mile High comics. And that was in 1975. And uh, it's never changed since, and there was never a contemplation of any other name. That's cool. I Yeah, I had heard this from uh, just people back in the early 90s when I first got to Colorado, really, because... I think I had been in Colorado for about five years before I had met up with you and you hired me. And like I said, you gave me a comic book aptitude test and uh, I missed a couple of like about a hundred questions or something. I thought yeah. that, yeah, it sounds, uh, but... Uh, That's way better than most people who couldn't even spell their own name. <laughs> I guess so. I guess I it helps to make comics guy. myself, you know? <laughs> Listen up, I had a guy that filled out an application. He went to my high school down in Colorado Springs, and it's a very simple high school, Widefield, and he spelled it W-I-T-E. <laughs> he went and graduated from the school and couldn't spell the name. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary, man. <laughs> That's, I guess it's made a full circle because it sounds kind of the way school is now. Yeah. You know, we had this kind of like, you know, uh, educational fucking up and down in this country so many times. But I, I've always noticed that the people who read comics or adore them or love them, they seem to be some of the smartest people on the planet. They're more on the ball. Yeah. You've met everybody almost from like this point in which you were retail in those early days. You've met pretty much everybody that has worked in the comic book industry up to date. Right. Um, you, I've seen a few videos where... I don't know who it was you were talking to, but these guys are obviously from the Golden Age, the Atomic Age. You know, they were around for a while. And the what they were doing and what you were doing, uh, it had a connect, it had a correlating connection. But then also, do you feel like it was like in the way at the same time, or did or did it seem to? run fairly smooth with everybody that was in the industry. No. No, it, it, you know, every industry is filled with human beings. And That's true. And human beings compete for resources. Yeah. Oftentimes resources, I mean, the currency of our 
business is public accolades and getting adoration. Yeah. And if you're a comics artist, I mean, this is the one industry that is totally, totally fan driven to the extent that if you're a fan, and this goes all the way back to the 1930s, 20s, um, fans used to write to guys like Harold Gray when he was doing um, Little Orphan Annie and make suggestions about stories, and they would appear in the comic strip. And that occurs to this day. When you go to a Comic-Con and you walk Artist Alley, you can sit there and roll out ideas at creators, and you're not the slightest bit surprised when one of your ideas makes a later issue. This is a collaborative, interactive type of an industry. But within that context, it also is an industry where um, you know people really do compete for recognition. Um, just to, to, to give a case in point, you know, Wally Wood really believed that he was the greatest comic book artist ever born or lived. He thought that about himself? definitely going to have human problems. Uh-huh. And, uh... No. Yeah, we're not fucking automaton droids. Nope. No, we're not. And, you know, they're trying to get people to draw on these digital pads. What do you think about digital art like that in comics? Do you feel like... Are you more of the old school guy like I am? I still well, support I'm, them, I'm but... Guy. Okay. Yeah. I remember being in Time Warp Comics. I thought it was like 94 or 95. And you had come to see Wayne, I thought, at the Arapahoe uh, location after they moved off to Pearl Street Mall. Uh-huh. And you had a copy of, like, Amazing Spider-Man. I didn't know if it was, like... I thought it was, like, in the early, like, the single digits, you know, like the early runs. 
Um, and I remember you, you had opened up the comic, and you smelt the spine inside the book. And I remember you saying, the only thing that smells better than an old comic is a newborn baby. <laughs> Do you yeah, remember this? Actually, actually uh, uh, I think sex is right up there, too. <laughs> Huffing old comics. Yeah, you huff old comics because... Um, so I'm not alone on that. Oh, shit, no. Ah, uh, it's nice is, to find others. When I, <laughs> when I started it, and I was living in my car, I was sleeping on top of 10,000 comic books. But they were all Silver Age. Oh, and my God. none of them were bagged because I couldn't afford bags. Oh. So I was sleeping on these massive piles of moldy paper. Wow. And I did that for four months. That's a fucking visual right there, Chuck. <laughs> oftentimes with 90 degree heat. Oh. Okay. And so I came to love that smell as being really sort of the birthing aroma of my life. You know, somehow I, I totally understand that. Probably more than most people that you'd ever tell that to. <laughs> That's good. Just not that. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Not my gig, guys. You know, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like all the different variations on sex and gender of which I have become extremely aware. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody has their own personal proclivities. And God bless them. It's just not mine. Now, that kind of leads into... Now you you go around the world. Do you uh you do you enter drag queen like competitions or do you just like join communities and like celebrate during part or how's that how does that go down for you? Because I know you've been doing that for a while, and I wasn't sure if you were like feeling this way your whole life, or was there a certain point that you felt like, hey, I'm going to open up and you know uh, and just be free. Well, it gets even more complicated than that. Oh, okay. Um, in 2003, I was bitten by a mosquito on my farm in Boulder while I was sleeping in bed. And that mosquito had previously bitten a bird that was infected with West Nile fever. Oh, and thus became a nexus for that disease and passed the disease from the bird to me. And uh, on August 12, 2003, I nearly died. I, I wow. um, went into a West Nile uh, shock where 
unfortunately, I was 400 miles away, and I had to I had to drive those 400 miles home, um, and I was so out of it that I had to ask the gas station attendant to uh, pump my gas for me because I could not I I couldn't figure out how to use my credit card or how to buy the gas. But I got to the emergency room up in Boulder, and uh, they did CAT scans and uh, then set me up for an MRI, and uh, they did a spinal tap. And Oof. long story short, they came back with, you're screwed, dude, because uh, you're one of the first people in Boulder County to, uh, to get West Nile, because West Nile had not been around in Boulder County prior to that year. It Fucking had been in Nebraska, but it was birds that were carrying it westward. And um, it's just the luck of the draw is what happens. You, you know, you, you, you drive into the intersection as some drunk comes down and, and T-bones you and kills you. I've had two friends die that way. Um, it's just the luck of the draw. We'll be right back, dude. Guardian of the universe and possessor of the incredible power ring, the Green Lantern has the ability to perform amazing feats against evildoers. Sentinel of the skies, winged phantom of the night, the Hawkman fights the evils of the present with the weapons of the past. Combining beauty, wisdom, and physical prowess, the Huntress fights a constant battle against crime and injustice. Joy of the oppressed, wonder of the multitudes, the flesh! This crime fighter is swifter than the speed of light, fighter than the rapidity of thought. With the uncanny ability to generate earth-shattering sound waves, the Black Canary fights a relentless battle against criminal injustice. With his reckless grin, Devil May Care Courage and incredible gymnastics, <laughs> Devil May Care Courage. strikes terror into the criminal heart. Batman the Cape Crusader has pledged his life to fighting the forces of evil. He better. We now return, dude. But anyway, I ended up with, with West Nile in 2003, and uh, it was really bad. And uh, it took me three years to get my cognitive functions back because what West Nile does is uh, it eats away the myelin sheath that protects your communicator nerves in your brain. And so um, what should be a nice uninterrupted flow of information uh, becomes arrested because of the fact that um, the, the nerves are shorting out and, and some of them even uh, atrophy and die. But the good news is your brain can recover and come back. So um, by 2007, my brain was doing pretty good until late July of that year when I got West Nile for a second time. Now, today with COVID-19, there's this really common uh, terminology called long haulers, people who get COVID 
and then they experience symptoms for a considerable period of time afterwards, which is what I did with West Nile. And then they seemingly get somewhat better, like I did with West Nile. And then they crash and burn for a second time. Well, the problem is that for me was that the uh, Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta had a website about West Nile and on it really unequivocally they stated, bitches, this is a one and done. Once you get it, you're done. You have antibodies in your system. You can never get it again. So when I started having symptoms for a second time, and they were equal to my symptoms from the first time, severe disorientation, lack of balance, um, total inability to like calculate or remember phone numbers or names or anything. It was like having Alzheimer's, like bang. Um, I went to my doctor and he said, no, you can't get it a second time. This is purely psychosomatic. Psychosomatic, that's what they called it. Yeah, yeah, it's all in your head, dude. And I said, well, it's not. And he said, well, then what do you want me to do about it? That was the last time I saw that doctor. Yeah, and well. He, 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 gave, he was the one who burst my four daughters. Um, but that was the end of that shit. Okay. Well, anyway, I couldn't get any treatment for 43 days until I collapsed. And uh, at that point, my wife took me in to the Boulder emergency room. And uh, they sent me for a spinal tap, and I checked out on them during the spinal tap and freaked them the fuck out, and they had to bring me back. And that was the moment at which my gender orientation changed. It changed. Yeah, and, you know, that's a really weird thing to have happen when you're 52 years old, because... You really don't think when you've gone through life as an identified cisgendered male that uh, suddenly you're going to be wanting to think about pink panties and putting on dresses. Do you feel like it was because of the whole the whole Nile experience, though? And like what happened was that the, the West Nile attacked the most primitive part of my brain. When I had West Nile, um, and I, I had several brain specialists tell me this. The reason why it was so hard for them to detect my West Nile was because I had encephalitis of the hypothalamus, which is the oldest and most primitive part of your brain. And that brain, that part of your brain is what controls things like your eyes blinking and your heart beating and taking breaths, all the kind of automatic functions that you go through. Well, what I learned then, which I, I'm totally clueless about before, is that your uh, hypothalamus also is where your uh, gender orientation comes from. Not necessarily your sexual orientation, right. but your gender orientation. And you cannot conflate those two things. So okay. my gender orientation was worked out in the same way that a lot of fetuses are worked out. Here's, here's the thing. You can go back. This has been really discussed a lot. It's become a big part of the science now. Um, when fetuses, um, when a zygote is first created and a, and a fetus starts to develop, they develop genitalia within about six weeks. And so when you get that first ultrasound, you can do, oh, it's a boy, oh, it's a girl, right? That works fine. But what they don't tell you is the part of your brain that identifies you for gender 
doesn't develop until you're between six and seven months old. So there's a span of time in between your little dick growing and your orientation and your brain being set where things can go wrong. That makes sense. That makes sense. And that's what happens to all these kids, and it's the community that I support the most. These kids, they're born, and they say, what's this thing between my legs? I'm not a boy, I'm a girl. Or the other way around, where's my dick? <laughs> you saw a lot of these kids, too, that you were able to connect with now and understood them on a, on a new level. That's, that's my community. I work really, really hard to help kids that are suffering from gender dysphoria. And it's a, it's a tough one, but the fact that I went through this myself at the age of 50, 51, 52, and, and, and went to, I mean, I had never been in a gay bar, had never seen a drag queen, a real live drag queen, um, until I was 55 years old. But I was drawn like a moth to the flame. I mean, it, it suddenly became a big, damned deal to me that I wanted to be around these men who were dressing as women. And where the fuck does that come from? I mean, that was not me. But it became me, and it is me now. And it made me very cognizant and very aware that some things can change. And definitely... The part of my brain that was attacked by West Nile, it was impacted in such a way that my gender orientation changed. And so I've been dealing with that ever since. And, and like everything else in my life, I don't do things by halves. Um, so once I figured out that I was changing, I became very immersed in the... Uh, the drag community, and what I discovered was that there was a nationwide organization that was formed in 1965 by a queen in San Francisco um, by the name of Jose Saria, and this organization is called the International Court System, and the International Court System has 70 courts in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, and uh, it's a place where uh, people who are gender fluid, people who are uh, non-binary, people who are transgender, uh, people who are just straight up just gay, um, this is where they gather and they celebrate each other's lives and they support each other in theory. Um, and so I started getting involved with the international court system and I started stepping up and helping out in certain areas. And long, long story short, I am now the Imperial Crown Princess of the Americas. Um, and I'm one of the, uh, the leaders of the entire international organization. And so I've gone from being a cisgendered, straight male to being one of the leaders of an LGBTQ organization and a mentor to dozens, if not hundreds, of transgender children um, in a period of 10 years. Now, I have two questions. The first one is... By the time this did happen, you found this all to be kind of a blessing because it kind of just freed you up where it was like this, something that was already in you, but you had been in retail and all these other things so long that it really just, you hadn't put any, there was, you needed something to kind of happen to your system, literally, to to 
would you say that like that's what really freed you up to be able to uh, be free on that end? I, I wish I could say that, but the truth of the matter is, I had zero cognition about my gender orientation prior to that West Nile, second West Nile episode. Even after the first one, there was no, not even, not even a flicker. Nothing. I went from zero, nothing. Now, does that mean that looking back now in retrospect on things like my childhood and my lack of, of um, you know, the sort of the over-the-top masculinity that was being represented by a lot of my peers, the fact that I rejected that and had no interest in it. Yeah, maybe. The end of the Char um, Charles Atlas, you know, propaganda age? Or... No, see, I, I fell in neither category. I didn't admire Charles Atlas, and I didn't want to suck his dick either. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't, I, I, Charles Atlas to me was just like, hmm, he made a lot of money doing that. Yeah. That, that was my only orientation was books. Okay, you know, what? What scam was who running in order to make money? And so, um, you know, same thing with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno and all these other guys. I mean, Lou's a really good friend of mine now. But, but That's awesome. You know, muscle guys were unimportant. Um, you know, I had no uh, gay orientation. You know, I was, my, my, um, uh, my girl name is Betty Pages, which is, to honor Betty Page, who um, was definitely my heart throb for, for decades. And, She's still a uh, hero of mine, too. Yeah, so, you know, this was a very, very strange thing that happened to me. Uh, I, I, it, it certainly made me believe in the science of um, gender orientation, and it, and it really hypersensitized me to the fact that these children that are presenting in genders other than what they were assigned to at birth, um, they're the ones that are right, not the adults that are trying to force them into a channel to which they feel totally uncomfortable. I think the raft of laws that, are, that people are trying to pass right now to keep these kids from living their truth, um, it's insane because Yes, there are always going to be some kids that um, take things on as an affectation or because there's some degree of peer pressure or they think it's going to make them cool or whatever. There are some kids like that. But truthfully, coming out as being trans puts you in a position of such public scorn that I, I don't know of anybody who would do it willingly. You have to really believe it in your gut um, that that you are other than what you have been living in order to put up with the, the suffering. I agree with that, for sure. Especially when most of the people that are putting the pressure on these guys, uh, they're either forcing them to go into it too hard or they're like trying to deny their rights. It's just like, just let people be them and, and let them grow. Yeah, yeah, you don't ever force anybody. Yeah. Anything. I mean, you leave them the hell alone. But I have seen it child, go both ways on that end. You know, if a child says, hey, I really want to start wearing dresses for school, even though I know I'm going to get, get dogged on really badly, 
What'd you say? Go for it, right? I mean, any good comic book parent would. Yeah, but now they're going to try and put parents in jail in Texas for letting kids live their truth. Well, Texas has always been hard on a lot of people, especially, and on comic retailers. I remember that was one of the first uh, CBLDF cases was that guy selling that copy of ElfQuest where the elf woman is giving preg- is giving birth, she's pregnant, and the guy got his sh- store shut down or whatever. You remember that? Oh, I do. I helped raise money to, to help defend him. Yeah, I, I figured you were part of that. Texas seems to be an outlier in that regard, but really it's the canary in the coal mine because huh. it's not just Texas. They're trying to pass these laws even in sort of purple states like Virginia. Um, anywhere that that the bigots can get any measure of power, um, transgender children right now are, are the targets because they're defenseless. And I find that so utterly repugnant. It's just amazing that these adults can live with themselves. Was that one of the reasons maybe you, uh, I don't know uh, for sure, but I know you do a lot of work for the homeless. Uh, was that one of the reasons that you may have seen a lot of these uh, transgender kids homeless and uh, decided to go ahead and um, up the ante on how much you wanted to help homeless people in general? No, not really. We, I will say that Working with the homeless community, that you see that a significant portion of homeless young people, in particular, are gay because they get thrown out by their parents. Yeah, and that still happens. It's not uncommon at all. Yeah, that's why I asked it that way because I was like, I know it's a very common thing. Yeah, and um, a couple of my heroes are Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera from. York, who um, were at the Stonewall riots. They were, they were among the leaders of the Stonewall riots in 1969. But um, they uh, formed a collective called the uh, uh, Street Transvestites uh, Action Revolutionary Star. And they opened a house in New York City, the Star House, specifically so that these, these orphan children would have some place to go besides working the docks as prostitutes. And, uh, you know, they both, they both died. Um, Marshall was found fl- floating in the East River and the police oh, refused, to, uh, refused to investigate. And Sylvia yeah. eventually died from drug abuse, among other things. That's um, harsh. But, you know, that's the story. I mean, one of the things I got to tell you is that, you know, people in my community, in the, in the transgender community, um, the death rate is horrific. The murder rate. Just just yesterday, I was reading about they found uh, uh, the body in a, a body in a dumpster of yet another um, missing uh, trans woman of color. Uh, to be a trans woman of color is paint a huge uh, target on yourself because there seem to be an unbelievable number of ultraviolet, violent, and and uh, uh, sadistic people who especially men who want to um, hurt you. I mean, there's something within them that creates this visceral response to want to hurt trans women of color. And we lose uh, at least one every other week. Um, Most times we lose one a week around the country where they're being murdered. 
down in Brazil, it's even worse. They're, they're murdering uh, trans women at the rate of hundreds and hundreds a year. Um, and, you know, when it comes down to it, that's an awful lot of what this war in the Ukraine is about. When they talk about Western values, what they're actually talking about is LGBTQ. And the fact, I mean, Putin has even made reference to the fact that he subscribes to what the Russian Orthodox patriarch bangs on all the time, which is the, um, the, the vileness of um, gender fluidity. And so um, world events right now are being shaped to a great extent by homophobia. Um. You know, if you ever do a comic, have you ever had anybody come up to you and be like, hey, I want to do the comic book about your life, Chuck? Well, I've just finished the first three books. So who's working on it? Are you doing the art yourself? Oh, goodness, no. I, I I, okay, I was like... <laughs> just on a real quick side note, when I, when I had West Nile the first time and they did that CAT scan, they discovered that I have a, uh, a very large arachnoid cyst in the left temporal lobe of my brain. And that arachnoid cyst is right where um, most people get their artistic stimulus from. And uh, mm. it controls your hand-eye movements and uh, it controls your emotional responses and then your ability to um, visualize and translate a word into a physical form. Um, I was born without that. That part of my brain um, never developed and I have um, this huge... Um, cyst inside my brain that is that consists of cerebral spinal fluid that is hardened into a substance that's very much like glass and uh, huh. one of my half sisters died from hers she she had one and apparently it it shattered and uh, the shorts pierced her brain and she died instantly oh so my God. um Sorry. i sort of live with the sword of damocles because of that bit, but uh, but i cannot um I cannot draw. The person that I've had uh, do my first book is Thomas Haller Buchanan, who is a magnificent artist, um, but he does not do graphic storytelling. He does um, still images. And so this, uh, this first volume, which only goes from ages uh, zero from my birth to age five, um, is uh, 24 essays illustrated by Thomas. And there's about 40 illustrations in there. Um, Thomas, unfortunately, right now is battling leukemia. Oh. And, and so um, we're very much hoping that he can um, finish the final editing on book one, which has an introduction by Jim Shooter. Okay. And uh, was actually edited by Jim Shooter. He went through and copy edited it all for me. And uh, Thomas has that right now. As soon as I get it back from Thomas, then that will go into print. And then hopefully Thomas can do the next book as well. It's already written, uh, another 24 essays. And then the third book, I'm on essay 65, which puts me 17 in. I need to write seven more, and the third book will be done. Um, that'll actually take me up to um, about 1972 or three. Um, which is when I was getting ready to actually open the first Mile High Comics store. So it's it's three books about my life before I even get to the first store. You have a fascinating life story. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. I um, what 
you've had many comic book artists, including myself, work for you. Um, have you ever considered uh, just starting a publishing racket, just off the people that have worked with you and putting out Mile High Comics, Mile High Comics? Nope. Not, it wasn't and something you ever considered? study in this regard is that the height of arrogance is to believe that the skill sets that you have in your areas of endeavor are transferable to other areas of endeavor. I am a great comic book retailer, and I say that without equivocation. I, I don't hold back on that. Um, I've sold a quarter of a billion dollars worth of comic books. And that's at retail, and that's direct to consumer. And as far as I know, no one else has ever done that. I have okay. never heard of anything like that. Okay, so um, I've been doing this over 50 years now. And so when I say I'm a great comic book retailer, I mean it. But that doesn't mean that I would make a great comic book publisher. It doesn't mean that I would make a great comic book distributor. There are different skill sets. There are different mindsets, different things that... that you think about when you're a retailer that you don't necessarily think about when you're in other areas of endeavor. Um, but I've seen people come into the comic book business over and over and over again. I mean, I think about the people that did techno comics, for example. And I'm, I'm just that's just one example. I could give you dozens. But the people mm -hmm. from techno comics, they made a ton of money selling their. Um, they had a, a, a TV series or, or a network that they sold to the Sci-Fi Channel, as I recall. Um, and so they said, we're going to take our money and work. Since we were so successful at creating this, this TV series, we're obviously fucking geniuses. And so we're <laughs> going to go ahead and open up not only this publishing company, but we're going to do this chain of retail kiosks in every mall in the country. Huh. They set a record. Because they lost all their money in wow. like 20 months. That's why techno comics came and went so fast. You know, um, you know, Mark Alessi did kind of a similar thing um, when he was doing his company, came and went. And in his case, the problem that he ran into was he wanted to do comics that were good rather than, as he perceived of it, comics that were guys in tights that really, you know, didn't accomplish anything. But the hubris there is that you cannot create comics based on your own biases. The genius of Stan Lee and all the guys that were that were working in the, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s is that they knew they had to sell on the newsstand. And so they just micro-analyzed every comic book for how to make it sell better. What would sell? The difference between Stan and the guys that were running um, DC, like Saul Harrison and guys like that, was that they perceived of their clientele, their customers, as being nine-year-old dimples. Stan said, no, my customers are 14 to 16-year-old kids that are the brightest in their class. So I'm going to write to them as though they're smarter than they actually are and force them to, to lift up their eyes. And uh, damn, did he succeed brilliantly. There was some kind of brilliant strategy that 
you know, there was a few moves that Mr. Lee had come up with that just were changed the whole way we look at shit, huh? And the way we're truly consuming truly. And, it. And his genius was in identifying that the baby boomer generation was not going to be the same as the generation that, that um, fought World War Two. You know, he saw the changes happening, and uh, you know, he gathered together a bunch of guys who actually were having a hard time finding work. You know, Jack Kirby was scrambling in those days. Steve Ditko was scrambling in those days to try and get work. I mean, Ditko was doing bondage magazines at night because it paid better. Um. And, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. yeah. Well, he, he was the underground artist of the two of of the Kirby and Ditko team, which I. Kind of do consider him more of a, the first two official bullpenners of Marvel, you know? Oh, well, of course. They were there with Stan, and, and uh, they were all bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, I find all of these, these uh, uh, fights that have occurred since Stan passed away about who did what and where and who originated what, it is just such disgusting bullshit because it's, it's just people who are trying to self-aggrandize themselves as being so-called experts about the history of comics. I knew these guys. I know them all. Okay? And, uh, no one's trying to school you on what they think they know against what you already do know. Well, not even that. It's more that I know that all of them were in their moments with each other. Like, I was there when Stan and Jack were talking to each other. Named That's fucking amazing, dude. <laughs> That is a popular opinion that a lot of people have. Uh, so where's the prize artwork? I own one piece of it. Okay, I found a piece of prize artwork at a dealer's uh, back, oh, about 1980. Okay? But there were pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of that artwork. Where is it all? Where are all the romance pages? Answer, they used them to wrap fish. They did not give a shit. And so when people now say... Oh, Jack ripped or, or Stan ripped this person off or ripped that person off. It's like, fuck you. Yeah. They didn't know Stan. They didn't know Jack. They didn't know Ross. Okay? And uh, there sure could have been a lot more equity. And I'm so glad that they sued. And I'm so glad that, you know, Marvel kicked them some money for all of their brilliant ideas that Jack either self-created 
or created in collaboration with Stan, um, well, it doesn't matter. Jack deserved more money. So oh, yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so they got more money for these, for these intellectual properties that are creating billions for Disney right now. So God bless them. I think that that's wonderful. But for fuck's sake, don't dog on Stan for being Stan. Stan was clever. Stan figured cool shit out. Stan kept the comic selling during a period of time from, from the Keith Hour hearings in 1955 through 1961 when they finally came out with FF1. World now returning, dude. Oh, dude. We'll be right back. I mean, yeah. If you're looking for adventure this summer, escape with Marvel Comics, fight crime with Spider-Man, beat the Fantastic Four, and watch Captain America in action. May the Force be with you as you battle the evil empire in Star Wars. Discover the secrets of the South American jungle in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And with Marvel Comics, you're never alone because they can go with you in the car or to the park, even on a rainy day. Marvel Comics are your ticket to fun and adventure this summer. We now return. Um, I, yeah, I agree. Did you ever feel like, uh, his, his uncle Martin was like a mobster? Like, did you feel like he was part of the mafia and kind of forced Stan into that business in a way? No, Stan didn't get forced into the business. Stan was a hustler. And, uh, he, he was, was a natural born hustler. Yeah, it was a great depression. Now, as to whether, uh, Martin Goodman was a mobster, who knows? You know, the Jewish mob was really big in the 1930s, Meyer Lansky. They did a lot of bootlegging, a lot of prostitution numbers, things like that. Um, who from among the publishers uh, was associated with that or not? Um, one of my friends is doing a book on Martin Goodman right now, and I'll be very interested to see what, what he has to say about it. I'd read it. Um, yeah, for sure. But Martin... I'll just tell you to me what is the penultimate Martin Goodman story. Uh, Martin was doing well enough in 1946 that he took his wife to Paris. Now, Paris was just recovering from World War II at that point. Um, but they walked into a gallery in Paris and uh, bought a Monet. Hmm. And the reason this came out was because couple of years after Martin died, the National Gallery in Washington held a Monet show, and they had a catalog for the Monet show, and uh, in the catalog, they showed this painting, and they said, whereabouts unknown, and Martin Goodman's widow had her attorney contact them and say, it's in my living room. Oh, shit. <laughs> and so, I, as, as I believe the story uh, ended, she donated it eventually. Um, as part of their tax planning to the National Gallery. Okay. But Monet's were not cheap in 1946. I mean, granted, there was a lot of looted art that was that was running around, and heaven only knows what the provenance, uh, provenance of that piece was. But um, the fact that Martin Goodman was able to go on vacation and buy a fucking Monet, what does that tell you about how much money he made during World War II? Yeah, that's, yeah. So... Um, yeah, the fact but it's together. <laughs> <laughs> Reptile Simon and Kirby never, never 
never paid him for um, Captain America one through ten. Um, he was not a nice man. I mean, not not even close to being a nice man. Um, and Stan managed to survive in his world when a lot of other people didn't. But when it came time to cut ties, which was when uh, Martin sold Marvel to um, Perfect Film and Chemical, uh, Hudson Vitamins, they were, they were sort of a mini conglomerate. When he did that in 1968, um, Stan stayed with Marvel. Stan did not stay with magazine management, which was Martin's company. And uh, that was sort of a permanent break. So um, Stan was wise enough to, to get out of what was a very uncomfortable situation. And uh, that that's how he essentially became the face of Marvel, um, was because they really, really needed somebody to step up right about that time. And so they paid him a whole lot of money, which is in part why Jack left soon thereafter. Because remember what I said about people competing for resources? Right. Yeah, it just goes back to that. Um, you know, when, when Marvel got sold, um, Martin walked away with a, a fair pile of money. Um, Stan got a promotion and a raise, and uh, Jack had his same patron. That didn't go over real well. His, I, I understand that Jack's wife, Roz, was not having it. No, no. And, and she was right. Um, I, the, the trouble is, though, that the industry was set up with work for hire, and uh, it was really hard to get around that because essentially the publishers colluded with each other and they wouldn't hire anybody huh. um, under any other circumstances. So either you worked for the company and gave them all your intellectual property, um, or you didn't work. And there were a lot of people who didn't work. Now, bear in mind that the battles over intellectual property go all the way back to um, people like Hal Foster. And, uh, you know, Hal Foster was on top of the world when he was doing Tarzan, but he hated it because he was doing somebody else's work, somebody else's property. He felt almost typecasted, or like, that's what you're good for, Hal, you know, kind of thing. And he said, no, I'm out of here. I'm going to do my own strip and do it my own way. And everybody said, you're going to starve. And then he, he got William Randolph Hearst to get involved because he, he went through uh, uh, King Features, which they own. And uh, uh, he ended up with Prince Valiant. And I think that you know the first couple of years of Prince Valiant are some of the most beautifully rendered comics that have ever been done in and he it's becomes like initiated into the Sunday Strip Mafia, definitely after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I've been friends with Burke Brethren for a long time, and Burke Brethren got into this huge fight um, over Bloom County. Do you remember that comic strip? Oh, sure. Yeah. And, yeah, and uh, he had to to leave and uh, start Outland um, in order to have his own copyrights and his own freedom to do what he wanted to do. And so that, that kind of um, ownership of intellectual property bullshit continues to this day. Um, they'll, they'll definitely rip you off if they can. I did hear a wild rumor about the Ditko estate trying to ban Spider-Man for all time. Do you ever hear that? No, but you know, there's all kinds of stuff that goes around. It's always the estate that... <laughs> I guess Kirby ended up with some good kids, though, and they're not trying to really abuse that. They just really wanted to get some credit where credit was due. I think Disney has, even though I wasn't a fan of the Eternals, 
I thought it was, yeah. uh, I you know, it wasn't. It didn't have the kind of Kirby appeal. I liked how they changed characters and you know, keep it up in modern time and all that stuff. But I thought there could have been a little bit more Kirby crackle in it. Yeah, well, I haven't seen it. Oh, I'm not going to spoil it then. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't speak to it. it to me, um, you know, it really, it really doesn't matter. Um, yeah. You know, going back to Time Warp and going back to uh, uh, my first store in Boulder. Um, okay. Wayne, when I hired him, was actually friends with with uh, uh, my first employee or second employee, uh, Steve Swink. And, yeah, I remember uh, Steve. Steve. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when Steve came to work for me. He had drunk the Jack Kirby Kool-Aid, and you could barely get him to talk about anything else. It was like, Steve, stop. You know, there's, there's other comics being published. We don't always have to talk about Jack Kirby, but he did. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I think at least a little bit in response to that, I was sort of like the anti-Kirby. I was the, uh, you know, he was good once, but now he's sort of like, heck, heck. Um, and uh, Steve wasn't having it. I wasn't having it. And, and uh, we would have some lively debates, shall we say. Um, do you feel like, uh, sorry, uh, do you feel like Carmine Infantino at DC was kind of the reason that Kirby did go hack-hack? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But at the end of the day, I came to realize that what was wrong with this picture was my eyeballs and my brain not Jack Kirby, because as I became more immersed in his work, I came to realize exactly what Steve was saying, and I became um, as as big a fan, not as vitriolic, but um, I, I just think that Jack Kirby was the number one genius that we've had in comics uh, in, in our lifetimes, um, followed very closely by people like Will Eisner, I mean, nobody ever designed a, a single-page image that better than, than Eisner, ever. Um, and then guys like Wally Wood who could do detail and who could do uh, futuristic landscapes better than anyone on the planet. Yeah. Um, so These guys had know, gifts, for sure. Yeah, but it, it all went back to Steve Swink and I, <laughs> sitting in this little basement comic book store, arguing about whether Jack Kirby was washed up or not. Um, yeah, and I, I have to say, Not a, never got into the fourth World Series, huh? No, I thought that stuff was unreadable trash, um, <laughs> and, and it just illustrated for me why why Stan really needed Jack, uh, or excuse me, the other way around. Jack really needed Stan to to write his stories. I mean, Stan obviously needed Jack because Jack was fucking amazing. Um, but but uh, uh, you know, Jack and and I later became really good friends with Jack and. and That's cool.
in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or whatever is so you could write down whatever you've been dreaming about. And I, I find that to be a miracle because I can't ever remember my dreams after I wake up. They're gone. Um, but he would wake up in the morning and then he would look at things like, you know, silver guy on a surfboard or whatever. And uh, that's how a lot of the ideas of creative comics came to be was from Jack's dreams. And how, how I mean, that's, you know, there you're talking about genius on the level of someone like Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, just oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. No. He, he definitely earned the title that he has. And, and like you said, there are a lot of people out there that just weren't there that think that, that a, they're these self-acclaimed, you know, fucking comic geniuses or whatever, but they don't know firsthand like you do. And, a, and yeah, the few people that I, are left from that period. I try to be understanding of younger people's interpretations, especially, I mean, how many times just during our conversation right now have you alluded to things that you were told or that you read um, that I've told you were complete works of fiction? Well, yeah, especially do, around evolving around you and, and the way that the store started, you know, like, I heard so much shit, man, and I, I don't know where these fucking stories come from, you know? I just know that a lot of people end up like me and end up coming into the pre-existing story that that is around, but it's simply not true. You may not find out till like I did. I, you know, I've been sitting on that shit for fucking 25 years. I didn't fucking know. Well, the thing is, is that when you've sold a quarter of a billion dollars worth of comics, there's going to be some people who aren't happy with you. Either they got a comic that might have had a misgrading or a comic that they felt was overpriced or it took too long for us to ship it or, you know, they just don't like the fact that all of a sudden that I've gone off into Bagotville. Um, who knows? Okay. I mean, there's, there's do people so talk to you like that? Do they, do they talk derogatory to you like that? Sure. Ah, oh, man. The audacity. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... I've had, I've had um, uh, proud boys in jackboots, uniforms, and carrying shields um, threaten to kill me right outside my store. Really? Just come up onto Jason Street and just, hey, we're going to fuck you up. Well, no. It's because we do all ages drag shows. And so they would, they would come and they would do these very loud and, and uh, nasty protests outside the store where um, I think the most we ever had was 40 at one time. But if you have 40 hyper-masculine, enraged people screaming at you while you're in a dress and high heels, man, that's a gut check. Okay? Yeah. That is a gut check. No. Uh, it is. It is like this... You know, I always think about Colorado. A lot of the descendants there are this, you know, the same assholes that, you know, took the fucking land to begin with. And they're just these gun-toting inbred motherfuckers that just still have that shitball fucking attitude. Well, the problem is, is that when you start looking around, um, it's shades of gray. Because... You have people who will tell you things, and I even run into this in the gay community. Well, you know, I'm really in favor of folks that that are are gender fluid and and 
that uh, I can handle this and I can handle that. But yeah, they really shouldn't be competing in sports. Hmm. Okay, wait a minute. You got someone who has gone through gender reassignment surgery. Surgery. They got cut. And then they're taking hormones, massive amounts of hormones. And it's reducing their muscle mass, changing who they are as a person. And you're saying, yeah, but the price of admission is they have to give up any dream that they ever had of competing in a chosen sport. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that they're, they're, everything has to be based on fairness and equity. And there have to be rules that are agreed upon by everyone that put equity in place so that cisgendered girls don't feel as though they're being unfairly targeted. But in the flip side of that is too. I mean, why should a child, young person who um, has taken that incredibly brave step of transitioning, why should that child be denied their dreams? Finding a middle ground, finding ways to accommodate everyone that's what politics is really all about. Unfortunately, it's it's very poisoned in America right now. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I hope to see that uh, we just keep acclimating and evolving towards, uh, you know, the freedom towards the individual. It's important. I felt that you know, as a comic book artist, uh, and the materials that I would like to distribute within it, you know, should never be called out by other parties, you know, and all this other shit. So I can see the relevance in, in the non-censorship. You don't censor humans and you don't censor the fucking art. Truth. But, you know, the problem that you run into, and, and you know, this is just me speaking personally. I'm just saying this from my heart and based on my experience, which is that it is religion at the end of the day that fucks everything up. Because what I see in America today and where I what I see as being the wellspring of a great deal of hate are these creeds that require people to see the world in a certain absolutist way that translates into everyone being either one of us or going to hell and damnation and nothing in between and that absolutism is what's really impacting our society today and is making it impossible to bridge divides and to find reason discourse it can't happen when people say but my god says this and therefore you cannot be right and you cannot be tolerated and you are actually at the end of the day deviant you are going to burn in hell and therefore i can make no i can make no transaction with you to try and find solutions and that's that's where we're at right now in america it's the difference between religious and spirituality you know religion seems to cock block motherfuckers by hey it's our way or the highway and spirituality allows people to just be themselves. Yes, and I'm a huge believer in spirituality, and, and I think that everyone needs to find something that allows them to cope with 
the pain of living because living is filled with pain. Your friends die. Your dreams are dashed. I mean, there's so many things that happen that over which we have no control that we have to find ways to cope with that. And I think that everyone does it in their own way. But, but when people get hooked into something which is absolutism, us and them, that's when we start really having problems. I totally agree. We're coming to the end of the show. Um, I want to thank you, Chuck. You're you just have an amazing heart, dude. And I, I didn't even know that really about you until just talking to you. Really, even though when we were working back then, I think we it was business. It was really just about business. And I remember getting busted a few times by uh, our old buddy uh, Bill Daniels <laughs> uh, for reading on the job. But it was kind of hard. It was kind of like working in a crack factory and not and not testing the goods. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. Yeah, that's why I tell people, you know, uh, they, people come to me and they say, I, I love comic books and I can't wait to open up a comic book store. <laughs> and I tell them, dude, that's like a, an alcoholic wanting to love it man it's exactly what i was referring and i remember just getting popped like i remember the third time i <laughs> i was and i remember getting sitting in your office and you were like don't read just just file the books don't read and uh and i remember that you know uh and i i knew that it was just it was you know there's a time to read there's a time to file the fucking books you know and, and well, uh, unfortunately, when you, you've got a quarter of a million dollars worth of orders to ship and people slamming you if you, if you don't get them out on time, <laughs> it, it puts a certain amount of pressure on your ass to like, yeah. read on people and say, oh, did you do your fucking job, please? <laughs> I remember you like being like, hey, you know, this is the third time now, Adam. <laughs> yeah, well, that's more chances than, than the real Adam got. That's true. That's true. I wanted to ask one last question, if you don't mind. How how, how many books estimate do you do you feel like you have in your your shop right now? Well, it's north of ten million, but I can't tell you even within a million of how far north. Is it impossible for you to say that you have a favorite book that sticks out out of all these millions of books? Yeah, no. It really is. There's so many great comics that have been published, and so many of them are published by my friends who I adore. Um, I can't. You know, that's like... That's totally fair, dude. <laughs> which, one, which one of your children is the best? <laughs> it's just yeah. It's best not to. Chuck, thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to have you back on and, and uh, at any time you, you, you feel it. Um, ow, excuse me. Uh, but if you... You call me, okay? You call me anytime. I'm cool. I'm here. And uh, I don't mind. You know? I'm going to go hang more wallpaper now. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time, Chuck. This has been literally one of my favorite shows that I've ever done. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Chuck. You're welcome back to the show anytime. 
amazing story and just a legend. Um, getting schooled on comic books by someone who's been there, it's probably better to listen to him than to presume that you know everything. He had a lot of points. I'm sorry he has to go through the fucking abuse of human bullshit, but what's in a hero? Chuck seems to exemplify traits of a hero. He'd probably be the last person, too, to fucking say that he was. Which just ups the ante that he really is. I want to thank everybody. And we're going to go into the third year. Uh, this is the end of the second year, man. I can't fucking believe it. <laughs> well, we made it this far, guys. And I appreciate everything that you've done. If you got a fucking story, give me a call, 206-666-5847. You can leave a back, you can uh, back message me or my mom on the back end of uh, Spotify or Anchor. If you want to kick down a donation, I won't stop you. You can hit me up at adam.air.williams at gmail.com via PayPal. Let me know if you got a story. I'm looking for anything that's hero-like. If you've done something to help somebody, I won't consider it bragging. If you've got a problem, PTSD, or if you got some time travel issues, whatever it is, give me a call. See you next year, guys. You've been listening to Adam RMD, GED, Underground Cartoon Therapy.